Welcome to the Afikra Matbakh series. My name is Mikey Mahenna. Today on the series, we have Vivian Sansur, who is an artist, a storyteller, researcher, and conservationist uh, who is behind many projects, but I most know her be because of her work with the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, which is what we're talking about today. Um, Vivian, welcome to Matbakh. Thank you. I like Matbakh. It's the best place in the house. Yeah, it is. I want to start with your childhood because I'm curious what kind of kid you were like and what your relationship with the sort of the earth was like and what your relationship with food was like when you were a kid. Uh -huh. uh, is that is that that's the question? Yeah, that's the wow. question because the reason why is, I'll tell you why I want to ask you that question, because you seem to have like a very, uh, excuse the pun, a very like deep rooted connection with your work. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you came to that, that if its relevance came to you really early, or if it's something that sort of happened to you at some point, you realize, oh, wow, this thing that has been staring me in the face my entire life, I have been ignoring. Yeah, well, uh, I have a very magical childhood in a yeah, lot of ways. Like um, now I appreciate it as a super magical childhood, especially when I see how children are sadly deprived of a lot of magic because uh, everything is pre prefabricated, pre-designed, pre-everything. So, um, but we didn't have pre-anything. We, we hardly had TV. Uh, when I was yeah. growing up. So I grew up in a small... You grew up yeah. in Bethlehem, right? I grew up actually in a... It's really a village called Bejala, but now it's a town. Uh, now it's okay. a town full of concrete and buildings that are quite ugly. People call them homes. They look more like tombstones. But um, no, I say that because truly, truly the, 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 the life that um, that was in Bejala is no longer there, in, except in very, very small remnants, which is why I'm doing the work I'm doing. But to stay in the in your question, which I'm not yeah. very good at sometimes, so you have to <laughs> bring me back. Okay. I, um, yeah, I grew up in a in a very magical childhood where my my playground was was the hills and was the terraces was my uh, grandmother's rabbits. She had uh, a lot of rabbits, and anyone who's ever raised rabbits knows that a rabbit has a lot of uh, bunnies all at once. And I grew up walking barefoot everywhere. My mom, until today, yells at me to put shoes on, and uh, I say, "I'm 45 years old. You should give up by now." Uh, yeah. But that's because my 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 chore as a kid was to go clean the rabbit poop, and there was a, a big terrace between our house and my grandmother's house, so I would go uh, barefoot, and my mom would go crazy. Yeah. But I, I I mentioned this to say like oh this was not uh, something you know we thought about or whatever. This was our life. Our life was very much based on the season, uh, what's going on with all other beings. There wasn't like, we're humans and we live here uh, by ourselves and everything is serving us. There was a lot of relationship, whether it's the rabbits, the stones, the, the lizards. And it wasn't so um, well packaged in words like, oh, we live one with nature. We actually just were in nature. And my yeah. grandmother had a lot of influence, even though she didn't mean to teach me anything. Uh, but I followed her a lot, my, my maternal grandmother. And she was quite the farmer. So I just followed her around, you know, making the fires after she finished the uh, pruning, which was actually a... a a healthy practice in the sense of how we manage the, the land now that we learn more. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and my uh, paternal grandmother was a, a fantastic storyteller who lived with us. She had very long um, mm. white hair, and I would brush her hair as a kid and listen to all these uh, 
fantastical stories about Al-Ghule and the Fikri. And so um, I guess that was my childhood. And TV was literally 30 minutes once a week. Yeah. So you're a combination, the storyteller and the farmer. I guess so, yeah. I am yeah. the seed. Oh my I was going to say... Um, Speaking about your mom, if anyone should know that the nature of a mother doesn't change insofar as so much of your work is focused on, <laughs> I've heard you talk about like um, the mother and mother nature and all this stuff. Your mom is never going to stop telling you to, to put on your <laughs> slippers. Uh, no, never. I mean, this is, I'm talking. <laughs> Don't open. be so naive as to know yeah. that the, the nature of a mother uh, will change. Well, only now, only now in my uh, in my 40s that I'm like, you know, Vivian, stop resisting her. Allow her to tell you to put on shoes. Don't put them on if you don't want to, but just she wants to be your mother. So, yeah, you do your job. She'll do hers. Yeah, 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 I know. It takes a while. When did um, it takes a while? Um, did you ever decide that this was going to be your life's work? Or did it just happen? Um, this is an interesting question. No one's ever asked me this question in this way. And I appreciate it because, you know, I... I was going to say, when did you? And then I realized maybe you never did. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, I actually never did in this, like, oh, this is going to be my life's work. I, I never think about this even as work in the sense that I was just sad. I was just a very sad, I was very sad and very hurt um, to watch everything I love just disappear. And it was, and also as a young girl, um, I was taken away from my grandmother and that magical life. Uh, due to political reasons and sent to a new place like to the United States where it was such a foreign terrain for me obviously I didn't know those trees I didn't know what they do I don't even now like I I was I just came from New York I'm back in Palestine now and I'm just so happy to just put my feet yesterday I spent the whole morning under the olive tree on the litter like on the soil barefoot also and just it just was such a delicious feeling because I know it there's nothing I'm afraid of because I know it like whereas in like in New York or whatever I feel like oh I need to what is this tick I've never seen this before or um so yeah I think there was a there was a moment when I came back and I sat on our balcony I've never told this story and I remember feeling that, now I remember thinking about our house, our family house, how it just sits there. And it, even when we are not there, it witnesses the snow, the rain, the summer, and it just stays there. And I, and I remember saying, I will never abandon. Like it's just an internal commitment I made with the house. But I, I didn't know then that actually it's not the physical, the structure that I'm attached to. It's everything that, you know, the structure is part of. So maybe that was a, an intention that yeah. I didn't know would become the rest of my life. Yeah. Is it basically, I'll never abandon you again? Is that how the sentence should end? Yeah. I, I, I felt like, wow, you have to experience all of this by yourself. And yeah 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 it's powerful it's a powerful moment do you feel like um growing up where you grew up um do you feel like you're at this work alone or you're at you're in you're doing this in communion with a whole host of people do which is to say basically do you feel fundamentally understood in in this mission like there are a lot of people doing this work with you or are you kind of like this the sort of the odd one out who cares about this stuff and no one quite gets why you care so much or both it's both because <laughs> i think everybody actually gets it in a very 
core way, uh, especially people my generation or older, they are very much aware of, they also love the things I love, right? Uh, But I think sometimes the difference is that some people are like, well, it's done. Well, what are you doing? You're like wasting your time and you're going to try to waste our time. Um, but I wouldn't say I'm alone, even though maybe I am talking about it more, but I think everybody feels that pain of, of this loss in a very deep way. And I think in Palestine, sadly, like we, we are constantly facing rapid loss uh, also of, of people and uh, people we love. Like last year alone, we lost three people that we work with. Um, and it's, it, it's cons- like some of it was like natural death, but it's actually not so natural. But people are under such tremendous stress. So uh, I think maybe where I feel that I'm, that the community shrinks is, when you make the choice that no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stop trying. Uh, I yeah. think some people just feel like it's beautiful, but you're too romantic. And and for me, I don't feel well. I think I am a little romantic, but I don't think I'm too romantic because I feel that I'm actually quite practical in a lot of ways. Uh, the difference that I'm just not committed to reality. Like I'm not, I know reality, I understand it, but I'm not committed. Yeah. To this reality. Yeah. To this reality. It doesn't interest me as a point of reference. So if someone tells me, oh, but this is how things are, it it doesn't mean anything to me. So what, this is how things are. Mostly because um, I would literally rather die than live in the status quo. But that's, yeah. I'm learning, applies not just in Palestine, but almost everywhere I go, that people struggle because we are forced as as human beings in this time and in this, in this age to choose between our internal liberation, like true, to live truly freely or to be obedient to a system that's designed to destroy us or use us. Uh, so to, to make the choice outside of that, whether you're in Palestine or in Jamaica or wherever you are, you, you, you really have to, yeah, release your commitment to what's considered the way it is and actually decide that you want to be free. And it's not an easy choice because every day yeah. you have to check yourself. Like I, you know, shit, I just did something that. Is not in alignment with me, for example. Yeah. I want to tell you my sentence for to describe what I think the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library does. And I want you to tell me how I'm wrong, because I'm sure I'm wrong in some way. You're wrong. Um, I'm wrong already. Um, so as far as I'm, as far as my understanding, my shallow understanding is that this organization is an organization that's dedicated to creating this bank of seeds of plants that are going extinct, essentially, from from Palestine, and to telling stories about not only the plants, but the people who care for these plants, um, who are being, uh, who care for the land that is being stolen and being destroyed collectively on a societal level. Um, Am I wrong? Is there something I am um, misunderstanding about the work that you do and the mission of the organization? You're not entirely wrong. Uh, so tell me how I'm how, how I'm off. It just it's not just off. Maybe uh, I think. But first of all, the li- it's a library, not a bank. Uh, so that's your first. Uh, Amazing. What's the difference? I'm so curious. Well, a bank. I mean, a library is just this living thing. People, you know, you check out. Yeah. You check. You check a seed out. You bring back something. So. It's a dynamic, alive thing, which leads me to the next part, which is that it's not some archive that just sits there to, for the sake of archive. It's, it's a living, it's a living archive, which means that it's constantly also 
changing. And so, yeah, there's the part where uh, I think, well, you're right again, where, you know, we're trying to find and make sure that the, the seed varieties that we of the crops we love continue to stay alive, continue to be in our fields, continue to be a part of our cuisine, part of our plates, you know, part of our dinner table so that we can eat our history and not talk about it like it's just something that happened. Like, uh, no, it's something still happening and uh, we're still doing it. So I think for me, that part about it's not just so that we can reproduce some fakus. It's about that we want it to continue to be something we crunch on and 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 that we actually share and there's enough for it to pickle and there's enough for it to throw away or and there's enough whatever. There's enough for it to compost. Yeah. There's enough to feed the donkey, you know? Um and so and actually one of the the funny stories about this is one time I was explaining to a group of people about the Jadui watermelon. Actually, here's the, the bottle. And I, I was holding the 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 bottle and explaining yeah. it was a it was an Eng, I was explaining English to a group of people from England. And this woman who who was coming with the, their tour guide, I passed down the 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 bottle and she just opened it and started eating eating these seeds <laughs> but I mean initially I was like what are you doing oh my god we just managed to do this and then I thought no she's doing the natural thing the right thing for her they are seeds that we eat we're supposed to be able to eat them and not be so like oh my god they're about like there's something beautiful about being able to take something for granted if you will so you know it's there it's it's like someone who's got your back, you know? Uh, so there is that part. Uh, and then there's the part of the storytelling because yeah. um, the story is so important to make sure that, you know, first people get excited about eating the stuff. But as the 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 work has grown and changed and now we are about to actually make another big change, I feel like I feel like actually if the story has become more important in the sense that the story is important in order for us to create a new culture and to create a new culture that is based on uh the knowledge of the past but but also our intention and our ability and desire to be new designers better designers uh and to allow ourselves that um because our ancestors were also designers Uh, we have to design the future we want and the present we want and story becomes so important because story allows you to make certain sense of the world story allows you to connect to things that you think are mundane in your life story helps you make sense of a world that's in chaos and so um as also our seeds have developed wings and they've been flying all over the world it becomes not just our story but a global story in because the world is in hospice i mean we are in a hospice state not just in palestine we're losing so much of all the things we love uh, the world we love is changing so rapidly and so drastically. So in a time of hospice like this, uh, what story are, are you going to tell yourself and others in order to actually build uh, a hopeful future or uh, design a, a new understanding of the world that allows you to live harmoniously, not just with other humans but with all other living beings and with all other people beyond the limited uh lens of nationalism yeah you know how how are we going to face this world so to think about palestine as if it's just alone in its struggle is actually problematic uh because we are we are in a in a massive need globally now 
to to figure out something new. We're on a bridge. I, I, yeah. I always think we are on a bridge, and I I feel like I live on a bridge, and on this bridge, you kind of have to figure out like you're wobbling, but uh, I think story really helps you kind of like adjust the wobble, maybe. Yeah, you know, I'm like I've I've ingested a bunch of, you know, like uh, your work and sort of been prepping for this interview. And I, I'm taken aback by how positive you seem. Wow, really? Yeah. You don't, you don't, I, you don't see my depressive moments. I don't see your depressive moments. Yeah. And I wonder if, um, if you tend towards sadness or anger, because I can't imagine, or cynicism, because I can't imagine that you... <laughs> you know, that you don't feel that sense of pessimism. Having seen, like, seeing the inaction, societal inaction up close, right? Like, how do you manage that? And do you, can you tell me your tricks, <laughs> basically? <laughs> um, wow. Uh, I don't know if uh, um this is a beautiful I'm question. Asking for, I'm asking for a friend, Vivian. Yeah, okay. Well, I think your friend is all of our friends and yeah. all of us. And I, I thank you for this question because I think this is the real conversation that we should be having. Uh, we are all in so much pain, I included. Uh, and it's hard. Like I, I teach now at, at, a, at a college and I see young people like, they are in pain and they're also angry because we're leaving them. What are we leaving them? Well, they really have a lot of work to do and it yeah. should have been our work mostly. Um, but having said that, what, what is the question? How do I, yes, I how feel. Do you, yeah, how do you manage it? Well, first of all, I should tell you that I, I live in a lot of grief. I am, I'm actually, you know, everybody tells me I'm so hopeful when I speak to you and I'm happy about that. Uh, but I, I have hit a very, um, I've hit very low bottom. And in fact, yeah. uh, I feel like in the last three years, I, I died literally in, in a very, uh, metaphorical but real way i feel like i died uh and and i'm so excited now i'm just uh first i'm exploring a new concept that i'm learning about um it's called peace of mind uh apparently some people haven't i don't know tell i, I me, am I'm, I, I'm trying to i'm trying to explore it as a possibility like oh if if such level of depression and and grief can exist, okay, I mean maybe there is this peace of mind option. And what does it mean like to have it? But I think I am I'm much better now. Uh, and it's not one like you you don't reach one place. But I think for me, and this is a very personal, um, I guess technique if you want. Uh, I, I really engage unseen forces. I'm, again, yeah. it goes back to not being committed to reality. Like I know, like for example, my father recently passed away and I, and I feel, for example, I was prepared. I was prepared not for the death of my father per se, but for death. It, it, like to to welcome death as as possibly even a beautiful process um or it's gonna happen it's not it's gonna happen how can i make it beautiful so a, I, a natural process yeah yeah and and so and also when you work with plants you know that that is a cycle right so i feel really fortunate that i was able for example to be with my father in a moment he's dying and 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 not of course i felt sadness and grief but i also felt so much beauty like the the privilege to be with someone as they transition and then to be connected 
like even after. So I'm not sure how this lands on, I've never talked about this in public, but you asked me. Uh, so I feel like, for example, I've entered a new relationship with my father, even though in the physical, uh, he doesn't exist, right? Um, yeah. So I I really feel that there are beautiful energies in the world, and they do exist in all beings, including birds and other trees and plants and humans. Yeah. And I just, I guess, I deal with it by um, cherishing those moments when there is that connection that expands your idea from, oh my God, I'm just here to, oh, there's all of this still available. Um, I don't know if that makes, it makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I wonder what advice you would give to your sort of a younger self who was, wasn't tapped into this as much as maybe you are now, who was, you know, fighting the good fight with no regard of peace of mind or no regard of, um, this aspect of, of life. You know, I, I find it so hard to advise like my younger self because mm. It is because of, I, I want to more thank her because she survived. Yeah. Um, I don't think she could have done anything different. So um, she had to, I guess, do this to come here. Uh, but maybe what I would say is to just um, hmm, give it a think. But I think maybe I would say to to trust, to trust myself more as part of something bigger than myself, that I am not yeah. as uh, central as I thought I was, meaning that I am an instrument of, of something else, and that is sufficient. Beautiful. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about your art. Um, and if you view your work as an artist and a writer um, and sort of a, maybe a filmmaker as being a different part of your brain and a different part of your self, um, or are they really one in the same? How do you approach that work? And how is that different from the work you do as sort of barefoot in the soil uh yeah i think for me they're one of the same um uh, obviously i i i know how to swim in different oceans but i yeah. for me i'm still uh, still the same fish uh a yeah, for me, the art world, for example, is something that sort of just happened to me. I never sought out. I don't care about art. You know, I don't, I don't care about art as a, oh, I'm going to dress nice and go to a gallery. Like, sure, it's fun, but I'm not, that's not. Um, but I, I became interested as more and more, like the art world started coming to me as, okay, it's coming to me. So I need to pay attention. What is the, the point? this and for me the trying to explain my work as something between between the mountain between the valley the farmer the seed uh, and story uh, art made a lot of sense in the sense that it just was easy like oh they want to call me artist okay great then I can do whatever you want because if if being an artist is uh, <laughs> is about in a I love the I love the pragmatism. I love it. I, love I tell it. you, I'm romantic, but I'm like, you want to call me artist? Please go for it, because <laughs> as long as I can get the work done. I, I would like it, it's hard. It doesn't come out of my mouth. It's hard for me. But uh, but then I thought, oh, when they say art, what are they talking about? 
And I was like, oh, oh for me, I was like, what, what am I talking about? And for me, I'm like, it's about imagination. If I am able to apply my imagination and the desire to design, then, oh, okay, great. I am an artist. Yallah. Uh, and so for me, also, the art world allowed me new platforms and new ways to build story. Um, and that's very exciting, continues to be exciting for me, you know, because I, I think part of it is that I'm so not interested in it as a, as a, as the only platform or as, oh, I want to be whatever a famous artist. So for me, it's, it's, it's just such a fun, wonderful space to really be exploratory. Uh, it's part of my work because for me, I see art everywhere. I, I mean, I when I guess I'm in love. I'm in love. I mean, I here have like these dried zinnia flowers. I mean, look at this. This is like this is the petal. You take out the petal and you have the seed. I mean, is this? The, I mean, for me, I don't know. Maybe I'm insane, but like it's freaking art. So I feel yeah. like I am in art all the time because like plants and are constantly blowing up my mind with uh, new thoughts and ideas and new discoveries. You learn about a new frog that does whatever. It's just like so much art in nature that I don't know. For me, it's hard to separate it. And because the more and more I understand my own work, I understand that my interest is truly refining and designing and creating new story, a story that, yeah. a story that is more tender, a story that allows us to create more tenderness in a, in a, in a world that is so hard. So yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to go back to your original question, how, how I deal with grief is I try I can't change the whole world, but I can expand the spaces of tenderness. And those spaces of tenderness can be in the shape of a terrace that we recover, or it can be in the shape of a, a group of friends that cook or eat together or care about each other. Um, it, it can come in so many different forms. So, yeah. yeah. There's this movie, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but there's this movie called Margin Call, and it's loosely based on the 2008 financial crisis in the States. I, I and it's fictional. It's a beautiful movie. It's amazing. It's like a Shakespeare, it's like a modern day Shakespearean play. It's really, really amazing. Okay. Um, but there's this scene in it, and it takes place the night before the world finds out that the the entire economy has crashed. Um. And there are these two bankers who are in a taxi going home and they're looking out the window, all the people on wall, you know, in Times Square are sort of walking around New York uh, and they're talking to each other. They're young, they're in their twenties and they're saying, do you think they know that everything is about to completely crumble, that the world is going to fall on their heads? Like they're walking around, going to get drinks and going to the movies and going shopping and having a good night. Like, do they understand the gravity of the collapse that's about to happen. Um, and I wonder if people who work in conservation and work so closely with the environment feel that way, like walking through the airport and walk, going to family reunions and going out for drinks where people all of a sudden are talking about, um, the, you know, football or talking about, you know, what they saw on social media. Do you just feel like, do these people even know the crisis that is happening. Wow, this is such a, a. I mean, I've spent times crying with my friends, and uh, because yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, the sad thing is, people are starting to get a hint. Uh, like I'm talking about, like mainstream most people but then sometimes i'd be talking to people and they're like really this is happening but then they think you're exaggerating um and this is where having community that 
that knows and is working, like being part of community is so important because otherwise you'll think you're crazy. Uh, the hardest part in this, which you might experience yourself, is that people are going business as usual. And yeah. I am uncomfortable with myself because I'm going business as usual because I am in a world that's going business as usual. So sometimes I'm just angry and upset with myself uh, more than even with other people because, okay, maybe they don't know, maybe they don't care, but you do. So what do you do? Like, do you still put your hands up and say, oh, well, the masses have decided. Um, it, it's a constant question that I would like to actually, you know, ask you or anybody who's listening. Um, yeah. Because, but that's again where I go into design again and, and the tender space because we might not be able to, to make it like some of us are going to, you know, suffer greatly. Some we are already. A lot of us are suffering greatly. Um, but one of the things I learned when my dad was in hospice is that ten percent of people who go into hospice come back to life, and they come to back to life more invigorated. So I've been thinking a lot about that. Thinking about the fact that we are in hospice. Many of us are going to die we're going to have to learn how to grieve better and how to grieve together and how to, yeah, how to do this dying business. Um, and then we're going to have to figure out how those of us who will, the 10% who will survive in this, you know, how to, to make something different. So maybe then the only way I feel like I handle it is, oh, let me just keep creating the, the, the things, the remnants that they will have, the 10% will have to work with after we go. Yeah. But then there's another complication that comes into the question that I am obsessed with and I'm massively anxious about. And that is AI, because I think AI is being handled so irresponsibly that I am, I'm scared. I'm scared that even the paradigms in which you and I are talking don't make sense anymore. You know, is yeah. it still like, like, you know, I used to always say, oh, and I still say, oh, we're on a bridge. And that's why we have to figure out the transition to the other world. Uh, but now I feel like the, the space on the bridge has shrunk significantly, meaning we might be jumping into another reality pretty quickly and not have enough time to wobble through a new design or a new place to live. Um, yeah. So I'm already feeling like a dinosaur. And I think that, um, I don't know, obviously, I know, I don't know, but I think the AI is, is something to really be discussed. Uh, and I'm not sure because people still go in business as usual as we learn, you know, now we may not have police, we may have robots, like, okay, I mean, it was bad enough. Uh, now, it's gonna be people you can't even talk. Yeah, you know, the, the funny thing about bridges is that bridges and planks are pretty similar <laughs> till you get to the other side. Dang. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. And I mean, <laughs> oh my god. I mean, I don't mean to be. I, it's that's not like a a saying. I was just as you were talking about. It, I was like, how do I know if we're on a bridge or a plank? I don't know. Maybe we're just. Um, it's, it's so funny because, like, when I'm in New York, I feel like I'm just suspended all the time. I just, yeah. I just. You know, I can't sleep the way I sleep when I'm in Palestine. Like this morning I woke up, I'm like, oh my God, this is the first time in a long time that I slept seven hours straight. And I think I was deeply asleep. Uh, I think because I have a very vivid dream life. It's just, it's, it's I, I'm, I'm equally engaged in my dream life as I am in the waking mm. life. So it, it, it can be sometimes exhausting. But uh, I realized, oh, despite like 
the immediate dangers here, uh, I still feel rooted, even though I know my roots are always uh, under threat. But I feel so suspended and so in the air. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think we need to learn from mermaid. Tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, mermaids played not the not the Disney mermaid. Not the Disney ones. No, no, okay. no. Don't please don't give up your voice for somebody. Um, yeah, I was going to say. I actually never saw the whole Disney thing. I should, really? I'm afraid to see it, that it might really upset me. Um, like the original, the 1990s original. Uh, I have Little never Mermaid? seen it. No, I have not. I've what? never seen Lord of the Rings. I've never seen Harry Potter. I've never seen The Matrix. Shoot me. Um, okay. I mean, we can. We, anyway, we can we'll, talk, we'll talk about, about this offline. <laughs> Do you edit this interview or it stays on? No, this is this. All of this is staying in. We got to keep oh, this because this is excellent. Oh, my God. This is embarrassing. I will try. I think I need to see the Matrix. I am curious, but I think, I think. Anyway, uh, mermaids. I mean, mermaids are um, fantastical creatures that, you know, most people believe they don't exist. Um, but there are a lot of, well, they are very important, by the way, in terms of story. And uh, a lot of people in the Caribbean believe in them and they have a role in the way uh, people who were brought and were enslaved um, on the ships, uh, you know, and oftentimes they would um, rock the ship in order to, to tip it because they, they'd rather be free than to be enslaved. They'd rather die. Um, and how, you know, there are stories about how mermaids really protected and saved mm -hmm. a lot of people. And they have a, a very important role in Haitian spirituality, which I'm mm -hmm. learning more and more about and, and really connecting with. But the more I learn about mermaids also, you know, it, it, it's, you know, the bottom of the ocean, we have not gone, at, you know, but so far. So the, the idea that we can it completely dismiss their presence is in itself a limitation of our imagination. Because how can I say this thing does not exist uh, with no uncertain terms because, oh, it doesn't make rational sense because we only believe in things we see. Uh, yeah. But the truth is there are many creatures we don't know about. And in, the, in our understanding of evolution, it's possible that some creatures, when we were ocean, also develop uh, human body parts and, and vice versa. Like, I, I'm not uh, very equipped to talk fully about it as much as to say that I'm fascinated by, A, the fact that people dismiss something just because we were taught it doesn't make rational sense. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that there are these other beings that uh, can move between worlds. So I'm interested in yeah. the movement between worlds, partly because we are constantly moving between worlds. And, you know, when you're a refugee, they're forced, you're forced to move between worlds all the time. When you're an immigrant, you're forced to move between worlds. When you're an indigenous person being removed from your land, you're forced to reckon and live with other worlds so that's what i mean in yeah. terms of exploring other beings because i don't i don't know with respect you know with respect that we actually we are quite wobbly and yeah we really need some some more magic and fantastical thinking and also yeah. or, or rather more Imagine. So I've heard you say a sentence that I want to talk about. You you talked about. I've heard you say the sentence that it's like this was all ocean. I'm paraphrasing, but basically this was all ocean, and somehow we are turning this world into like all desert. 
essentially, some version of that sentence. And it made me realize like I, the, the extent to which I don't really understand what's happening with the desertification of our land. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what that actually looks like on the ground and how that affects daily life and this world that we we inhabit? Wow, that's like a, a five-hour conversation, a, but yeah, well, it's a five-hour one. But, but we I'll, can do I'll a five-minute version of it. I'll try to do five. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, there are different ways in which our landscape is changing. There's the political, which impacts the ecological and and all of that. Uh, one of the ways is that, for example, I mean, the political, for example, it can be as basic and straightforward as. Uh, like, for example, in the Jordan Valley, like a lot of farmers have been forced off of their farms. And in the last uh, 20-some years or more, uh, they've been now moved to be workers in plantation for monocrops. And while they used to work with the water that came out naturally from the spring, now that water's been diverted to these plantations and they they don't have the the water they can't have a, a diverse farm and uh things are drying up and now literally their farms are deserts you go there it is it's dead there is no farm uh and that all also comes to understanding industrial agriculture how it actually doesn't value soil as a living thing but rather as just something to hold the plant. So if you don't have something, oh, I'll, I'll get it and add chemicals, I'll add whatever. And that's also destroying our soils and making it really difficult for us to grow even the things that we used to grow. So the world also, you know, climate change is causing also a lot of changes uh, that are making places that used to be lush not possible. Uh, to cultivate we have also the fact that um there's more like um, i can't pronounce this word so i'm not fine but high concentrations of salt even uh in water uh so a lot of different elements uh and also people's uh lack of access and movement and uh and our massive consumption of things that are causing the, literally the earth to change. Yeah. Can I ask you a really stupid question? But I was, I really want to know. I may not know. What, I might be equivalent. Yeah. It's very first principles. Why do monoculture seeds, why are monoculture seeds dangerous or problematic or harmful for long-term health of soil? Well, uh, you know, in Arabic we say "al-batn bustan," the belly is a garden, and yeah. uh, you see how, like, with when you have different siblings, each one with their own talent and their own ability to fix certain problems, you can you can have a healthier life because what you can't do, I can do, and vice versa, right? So uh, when you have a diverse farm with different kinds of crops, plants also help each other. They, you know, some plants, we plant them next to each other because they help each other uh, not get sick. Or, But also when we have a diverse farm, let's say you are growing cauliflower and lettuce and whatever, and then your cauliflower gets hit by disease. Uh, if all you have is cauliflower, then you're kind of shit out of luck because you only have cauliflower. But if you had cauliflower and you had tomatoes and you had okra and you have corn and you have, then you actually have uh, a healthy and 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 supportive uh, system. So diversity becomes a source of power, um, and monocrop is only concerned with sustaining uh, a business rather than a, a community, a community of plants, a community of 
of also pollinators, bees, humans, uh, and it's more concerned of, with profits. So it, it makes the farmer more vulnerable. It makes soil uh, also suffer because when you only grow one thing, you consume it so much. You, you, we need to rotate crops so that, like for example, when we when we have uh, fool or beans, uh, you know that's we, we have beans right now, and that's a nitrogen fixer. And then next time, in the same place where we planted the fool, we're planting tomatoes or whatever. So the soil continues to also be alive and diverse. And so having diversity, whether it's in the human or the seed world, because we are seed, uh, is essential for our survival. Yeah. And our health. We have ever, and, and our health, yeah. Both at, on every system level, on our like body's system, our communities. Um, I've heard you talk about like indigenous wisdom, right? When it comes to farming um, and incorporating that that knowledge into uh, other systems that are like maybe a little, have less access to that type of thing. Um, I wonder, were farmers in, uh, you know, in the Arab world specifically in Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, this, this sort of region. Um, I don't know, I don't know a smart way of saying this. Were they particularly good farmers? I mean, like, were we historically excellent farmers and then we just all of a sudden have been taken advantage of and then, you know, 20th century corporate takeovers and nationalism has wrecked havoc havoc on it is that kind of the story or is there something else going on there <laughs> well yeah. i mean it's it's like it's a stupid question to ask but i'm like were we any good at this at some point we are yes we were so good at it to the point that the world eat bread and cookies because of your grandfather and my grandmother um and and it wasn't just us. We weren't the only good at it people. You know, people were good at it in so, different places in the world, uh, in the Americas, before <laughs> Europeans destroyed them too. Um, eh, but also it depends what you mean by good at it. Because although we're talking about agriculture, you know, agriculture by its nature is violent. You know, you you do have to dig and you have to... You know, it, it, it also, I, I think in my thought process, I had the thought that like agriculture is the beginning of human anxiety because we were, you know, hunters and gatherers. We trusted that nature will provide and suddenly we got anxious. It's just not going to be there or we got aggressive or greedy with each other and we wanted to hoard things and we started agriculture. Um, but it's also that we applied our imagination. So yes, people here in the Fertile Crescent, uh, they developed the wheat and the barley. Like they had the imagination, like somebody was so crazy to, and I, and I tell this story a lot, but because I'm fascinated to learn about the way somebody can Again, it's this is the core of like believing in something unseen and being willing to examine it, play with it, take a risk with it, be patient with it, figure it out, watch it. Um, and so someone kept growing this grass over and over again to like, oh, yalla, let maybe had that will become uh, a sheaf. And oh, how about we burn it and it becomes freaky? Like, who? That's wild. Like you decided, I'm gonna put this thing in fire, and it's gonna, and then I'm gonna cook it like rice or whatever. I mean, they didn't think rice, but I'm gonna just boil it yeah. and see if I can eat it. Yeah, or it's some meat. It's 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 quite genius. Yeah. So were we good at it? Whatever it is and what good at it means, I know that we were good at surviving and imagining. And that is yeah. what we need to be good at again. 
which is it was such a such a scary idea that they called it freaky. So I had to make oh. I had to make the I had to make the joke. It was sitting right there. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> yeah, it's freaky. It's freaky. <laughs> I know. I know. I remember the first yeah. time I made freaky with someone, and he's like, "Just throw it in there." We made this big fire, and he's like, "Just throw it in there." I'm like, "Oh, but wait, are you sure?" And he's like, "Yeah, just throw it in there." And and when it came out, and he's like, "Now blow." And I'm like, you are wild. I thought. That's cool. Yeah. The person who showed me the first time how freaky it made, I'm like, oh, they're a genius. But they're just replicating the genius of others. And so I think, I think, and I still think there are people in our small scale farmers who are still wildly imaginative, even though the world is trying to oppress that and and truly truly when we talk about seeds and liberation and for me you know i'm i'm not i'm not a farmer who's like i'm 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 a i'm a terrible farmer i'm just a very good pollinator organizer storyteller but i'm not the one who truly like doing the farming as much and yet um i see how Farmers who are committed to, to still holding on, it's not they're committed to holding on to just the food. They're holding on to their autonomy, their, their imagination, their ability to make decisions for themselves because agri-industry actually tries to tell you what to do all the time rather than actually you being exploratory because it's so dangerous if you are exploratory you might yeah. you might you might think freedom is a possibility i'm still stuck on this what you said earlier about agriculture being the beginning of anxiety um because it's it's so interestingly connected to one of the earlier things you said about ai because agriculture as you're describing it right was born out of a desire to create safety, right? To, to preserve ourselves, our, our own ability to live another day, right? Live another season. Yeah. And let's control, let's do something that can create some sort of control in this chaos. And consistency, and which is a human consistency. need. Consistency. Yeah. A human need, right? And let's build, let's use our ingenuity to make technological advances that allows us to be a little more healthy, a little more consistently sus sustained, sustain, have like the sustenance wow. needed, right? And on a consistent basis. And let's do it. Like what could go wrong? Where would this go, right? Not being able to see the horizon of, oh, agriculture will turn into like this insane industry. And and our hu our humane our human sort of desire for profit will completely abolish this very pure desire of advancement and ingenuity and imagination. And the same thing's happening with AI, right? It's like, oh, let's oh, this could help us a little bit. This t technological advancement could like help us a little bit, right? What could what could go wrong? <laughs> I find no, it really like hard quick. to believe, and I could be naive, that, yeah. um, I don't know, I think, maybe I'm, again, romantic in my understanding, but <laughs> I think that, first of all, you know, things don't, like agriculture and all its initial technologies, if you will, didn't happen overnight, like, it's, you know, slowly, yeah. and people, and again, people were looking for peace of mind which is uh, the same thing we're still looking for. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know that um, the human being can have peace of mind, but um, I, have, I don't know. I'm very suspicious of AI, meaning that there are lots of things that I guess people say helped humanity. And obviously we're talking through this thing uh, and it's why yeah. uh, it's part of, you know, the whole intelli new intelligence. Uh, 
I'm not sure, like, that the intentions have always been so pure. Uh, I'm not sure the intentions were always peace of mind because by the time these things have become so important to develop, we already have um, economic and political structures that are designed to destroy. Not that there weren't uh, forces that were designed to destroy before, but I feel like, as we all know, I mean, today when we talk about destruction, we're talking about destruction. It's not like yeah. a battle with um, with knives, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I just I'm I'm in that way. I am very suspicious and extremely cynical, and I know that a lot of people disagree with me because they think I'm just yeah. um, I'm not against advancement. And and I think part of it for me is just it feels so arrogant so massively arrogant to think that we're going to create this thing and it's not going to have its own life. Not to mention like how many sci-fi movies have we watched that came to life, including movies about pandemics that like, yeah. uh, So I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so reserved about AI. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, uh, uh, yeah. It's um seems very, very inevitable and scary. Um I wanna wrap up the interview, although I, I wish I didn't have to, but I wanna respect your time. Um with four really quick questions we'll which four we'll wrap really, this up. four quick questions and you wanna wrap up? Okay. Yeah, four yeah. quick ones. Uh-huh. These are our uh our sort of quick QA. The first one is what are you reading or watching these days? I'm reading and watching a lot about the Haitian Revolution. Oh, yeah, and so re- interesting. And I'm trying to learn Haitian Creole. Nice, amazing. Um, who would you love to shadow for a day past or present? Oh, oh yes, I know. I would like to shadow my great-grandmother, Jamile. Maternal or paternal? Paternal. Cool. What was, why? Who was she? She's someone I've never met. I've only heard about her. And everything I've ever heard about her is so freaking amazing that I just, I keep trying to know her. But I all I have are these, like, I even meet people. I met people the other day in the, in the, in the valley, and they're like, "Oh, you're um, you're Vivian Sansur. Jamile was your great grandmother. Oh, we used to love her tomatoes, oh, nice. and she used to do this and that. And apparently, she used to also um, stay and live in the in the in the mountain by herself, which is like at that time especially was scary. So, I I think she must have been a really badass woman. And then my dad. Before he passed, he had told me a lot of stories about different recipes she used to make. I don't know. Sounds like she would be an amazing human to learn. Cool. What is your guilty pleasure midnight food choice? Guilty pleasure. I love donuts. They're my guilty pleasure all the time. What kind of donut? Just a plain donut. Oh, no. If I really like, I love. I love uh, uh, a really well-made uh, raspberry-filled powdered donut with coffee. Okay, hello. Oh my god! Hello, what's going on? And it, yeah. we had to tap into the yeah. real, yeah. the real feeling. The real. Okay. Um, and the last question is: What dish reminds you most of home? Um, artichoke stew. Wow! Yummy. Mm. Amazing. Okay, Vivian, thank you so much for this. Thank Um, you. If anyone is interested in finding about your work, both the Palestine Palestine Heirlooms Seed Library, Traveling Kitchen, um, all the other stuff that you do, they can go to VivianSensur.com or find you on social media. Um, Vivian, you're so much fun to talk to. You are too, thank you. Thanks for doing your work. Yeah, mermaids and everything. Yeah. All right. 
Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.